not only is there a part of me that's dancing, but I'm just reminded how God wants to partner with us. Did you guys hear that? Did you guys hear that? God wants to partner with us. Think about that. I mean, some of you think God's too good for that. Like this is all God's deal. Guess what? We're the bride of Christ. Marriage is a partnership. God wants to partner with us to redeem the world. Oh, it's just awesome. Um, Okay. Our text today, we're continuing our look at Ecclesiastes. By the way, I'm supposed to give a report on Israel. Israel's great. (laughs) So if you want to talk to someone, uh, get a feel for it. Just talk to someone that went on the trip. Um, uh, God did a a wonderful thing and we're all alive. (laughs) Not because of the bombs, but because of the way I lead them there. Okay, that was inappropriate. Let's go to our text, Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're going to start right in the chunk. Sometimes I wish our Bibles didn't have all these chapter and verse numbers, which it originally was without those things. Those things were added a thousand years later. And yeah, they're helpful. But let's go to uh, chapter 2, verse 24. And I'll just start reading, okay? So that's Ecclesiastes. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their, their work. That's awesome. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their work. Because the word for work is the same word for worship. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is Havel Havalim, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear, a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their work? I've seen the burden God has laid on on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. To each of them may eat that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their worship. This is the gift of God. You may be seated. So in my, in my seminary days, I think I was going through this little, little stage. Um, 
where instead of reading my required reading, I'd oftentimes find myself in the basement of the library uh, reading works by Elmer Camus, like The Plague and John Paul Sartre, Nausea, uh, Kierkegaard's The Sickness Unto Death. These are all just uh, mainly post-World War II existential writings that speak of the meaninglessness of life. Well, Ecclesiastes fits right into this existential genre. In fact, it's right in the middle of our Bibles. Over and over again, the author, who I take to be as Solomon, says, Havel, Havelim, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. So this is where I want to start this morning. Who says such a thing? Or who asked such a question as to the meaning of life? We do. This is not a third world question. This is a first world question. Because this is a first world problem. Only the prosperous are haunted with such a question as to what the meaning of life is. Because just think about it. If you're living simply to survive, everything you do in the course of a day matters because everything you do is about living and dying. But for those of us whose lives are filled with leisure and wealth and easy living, and really it's a reality that most of the world knows nothing of, it's in the monotony of our pleasure and our pleasure-filled lives where we actually have the luxury to go to coffee shops or brew houses and sit around and think about the meaning of life. And this is where Solomon is. He's a man who's made it to the very top. He lives much of his life at the top. And it's here where he is confronted with life's meaning. Who are you, Solomon? What are you doing here? And see, it's it's those questions that are haunting him, and as they're haunting him, he begins to experiment. The experiment is really an experiment in worldliness. And worldliness is, is not the idea that the world itself or the stuff of the world is inherently bad or evil. Worldliness is simply living as if the world is all there is. It's seeking life without God. In fact, that's why this phrase, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, is used 30 times. This is Solomon's way of expressing a world or life or seeking life without God. It's living as if the world or everything under the sun is all there is. It's, it's doing life and seeking life without any thought to God. Now, if there ever was a person who could find meaning to life outside of God, I, I think it's Solomon. I mean, Solomon has the means. He is the richest man in the world during his life. He has the power uh, he has the ladies. I mean, he, he has everything to pull this off. And so the things that we learn in Ecclesiastes, um, these are not things that Solomon learned by taking a class. This isn't something he read in a book. He learned the wisdom of Ecclesiastes through real life. 
And you talk about a book for our time. The spirit of times in which we live. I mean, I think it's our whole culture. We're all a bunch of Solomons trying to find meaning apart from God in anything or everything under the sun. So let me ask, who are you? Do you know? Do you know your name? Do you have an identity? Right now, do you have a sense of who you are? And tell me, what's that rooted in? And why are you here? Do you know why you got out of bed this morning? Or tomorrow morning, do you know why you'll get out of bed? See, these are the questions that are confronting Solomon. And they're the same questions that confront us. Now, as I've been studying this book, um, I don't think it's a linear book. I don't think it's written in a linear fashion. And so, in these first six chapters of Ecclesiastes... I think what Solomon is doing is circling around his main conclusion. And as he circles, kind of like a shark circling around its prey, he's kind of detailing his experiment and trying to find meaning in life apart from God. And so in in chapter 1, this experiment begins with his pursuit of knowledge, of studying and learning, of, of knowing things apart from God. In fact, the key phrase is in verse 11, under the sun. Look at those verses. What Solomon is asking is, what is it that we can actually know apart from God? To what extent can we reason apart from God's revelation? And by the way, this is the whole attempt of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is essentially humanity's attempt to explain all aspects of our world, from economics to biology to ethics, apart from God and his revelation. And if you want to just sit back and look at history a little bit and look at a few things the Enlightenment gave birth to. Well, it gave birth to Nazi Germany. It gave birth to the atheistic communism of the Soviet Union. It gave birth to the materialism of the United States. All of these things resulting in the gross trivialization of life and the death of millions. And today we say our world is is post-enlightenment or post-modern. But we still think that all of our problems today are just due to a lack of education. And so we just instinctively think that if we could just educate people, all of our problems would, would go away. Or if we can just get a Harvard grad or a Princeton grad running things... It's going to be okay. I'm biting my tongue right now. (laughs) Solomon, according to the Bible, is the wisest man to ever live. His conclusion? All of this is just a chasing after the wind. And then he adds, and what a heavy burden... God has laid, the literal reading is, on the sons of Adam. 
See, he wants our minds to go back to Adam because Adam had no philosophical struggle in the garden. Adam knew God. He walked with God in the cool of the day. But when Adam sinned, basically the lights went out in the world. And Adam's awareness of his place in the world vanished. And as a result, we will never know who we are or what we're doing here or explain the deep realities of life apart from God. God has to enlighten us. God has to reveal to us who we are, what we're doing. I don't care today, uh, college student, if you're attending Harvard or Grand Valley, you know this. You can expect your professors not to just to be neutral towards your Christian faith. They're at war with it. Because our culture has become, let me say, too smart for God. And as we turn from understanding life in our world from the perspective of God, especially in the university today, it's, it's no wonder then that these same institutions have become the leading places of orgy and party, is it? Next, Solomon describes his experiment with pleasure. Sometimes we call it hedonism. I mean, look at this in chapter 2. Look at verses 4 through 8. He says, I, took great, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves and, of flourishing trees. I, I bought slaves and workers. They were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And the silver and gold I amassed uh, was as great as anyone's. I even acquired male and female singers. And then just a little clause and a harem as well. <laughs> I'm only laughing because of how big that harem was. <laughs> I mean, this whole experiment for Solomon in- included this aggressive materialistic pursuit. And I don't know if you know this, but his harem actually was so big that that Solomon could have sex in the morning, at lunch, and at night with a different woman, 365 days, and still have leftovers. Look at verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desire. I refuse my heart no pleasure. I just feel like that one verse alone describes our culture. As we live life without God, what we've become is one of the most permissive societies of all times. There are no restrictions today. I love what Malcolm Muggeridge, um, the British thinker of the 20th century, said. He said, if God is dead or if we've thrown God out, he said, somebody is going to have to take his place. It'll either be megalomania or erotomania. Either the drive for power or the drive for pleasure. For the clenched fist or the phallus. Heil Hitler or Hugh Hefner. Boy, that's quite a prophetic statement about our world today, isn't it? 
Look at Solomon's conclusion to this part of his experiment. Look at verse 17. He says he hates life. Verse 18, he says he hates the very things he thought would bring him pleasure. And by the time he gets, he gets to verse 20, he's in a place of despair. Ravi Zacharias once said something about despair that I'll, I'll never forget, and it went something like this. He said, despair is not the result of having too much suffering in one's life. He said, that's not what causes despair. He said, despair actually comes from having too much pleasure. Of course, Rob, Ravi was born in, in, and raised in India, so I think he can see some things about our culture that we can't see. And he sees an America that is drenched in pleasure, very pleasure-seeking, pleasure-immersed people who really have the means today to indulge in any and every kind of pleasure under the sun. But here's the big question. Are we happy? Or why are we so unhappy? I mean, my, still, my, my, my children still say all the time, they said it more when they're young, but they still say it is, I'm bored. What do you mean you're bored? You know how we fix that? Basically, we said, every time we hear you say, I'm bored, you're telling us you have nothing to do and we're going to put you to work. <laughs> now, here's the thing about boredom. Boredom is just two or three steps removed from depression. It's all of the same family. And not too far around the corner is full-blown despair. Do you know that right now, in our first world country, suicide is the third leading killer of those between the ages 15 and 24? Because suicide is a first world problem. In fact, the richer the country, the higher the suicide rate. Did you know that 20% of those aged 15 to 24 are depressed? Some studies will go as high as 30%. And then how many of, uh, of those in this age group or even the younger age group have been pre- prescribed some numbing prescription? We are not a culture that's growing weary of suffering. We are a culture that's growing weary of pleasure. Because whatever your pleasure button is, you hit it and you hit it again and again only to find it. That is, you hit it harder and faster. It only delivers less and less. Until you're just left hitting it furiously with no effect. And that, my friends, is what philosophers call existential despair. Or what Solomon calls a chasing after the wind. I know, this isn't fun stuff to hear, is it? But Solomon isn't done yet. Chapter 4. Again, we're circling around this thing. He seeks meaning and achievement. Look at 4 verse 4. He says, And I saw that all the toil and all the achievement spring from one's person's envy of another. That's what it's all about. I want more than you. I want to be further ahead than you. But he says this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
And then he says in verse 5, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil. And that too is a chasing after the wind. In other words, what Solomon is saying is I gave myself to workaholism. And then in verse 5 to 6, he says, all right, a fool is the one who absolutely does nothing with his hands. And then he says, better is one handful that produces some rest than two fists that are always full of labor that end up just being a striving after nothing. Or another way of putting it, it's, it's better to be one fist 40 hours a week and some rest or two fisted on everything 80 hours a week. Workaholism. He says it's a chasing after the wind. Verse 13, he says, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. wonder who he's talking about. He could be talking about himself, but I don't think he is. I actually think he's talking about his dad, David. Because the next verses so describe David, it says the youth may have come from a prison to the kingship or may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. And I saw all that who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. And that would be me. In other words, Solomon's looking at his dad and how he came from poverty to riches, how he went from just being a shepherd, even in prison as Saul sought him uh, to kill him, to the king of the land. But when it was all said and done, they just wanted David's kid. They wanted someone better. They wanted to move to the next thing because that's how it is. I'll tell you, even if we do somehow make a name for ourselves in this life, this isn't going to be that encouraging either, but I want you to think about this, how quickly we are all going to be forgotten. How many of you right now know the names of your grandparents? Okay. How many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? I see a few hands. That's how quick we're going to be forgotten. Finally, Solomon talks about money and possessions. Look at chapter 5. Remember, this is uh, the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. And look at what he says in verse 10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income, he says this too is meaningless. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Or in other words, the more you have, the more you want. And then he says, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Or in other words, the more you have, the less you're satisfied. Is that you today? And here's the deal. We can plug anything into this equation. We can plug fame into it. The more you love fame, um, you never have fame enough. Whoever loves wealth is never, or whoever loves fame is never satisfied with his or her fame. 
You can plug the success of your kids. You can plug achievement. You can plug a particular pleasure. You can even plug a specific thing in this thing, like house. Whoever loves house never has house enough. You can plug clothes into this. Whoever loves clothes is never satisfied with their clothes. You can plug technology into this. Whoever loves tech never has tech enough. Whoever loves tech is never satisfied with how much tech they have. You can plug boyfriend, girlfriend into this thing. Anything. And again, it's, it's, it's not that any of these things are inherently bad, but it's when we make anything other than God our ultimate end, the end to which we exist, when we live as if the world is all there is. Or this pleasure is, is the end to which I live. Or, or my boyfriend is the end to which I live. Or this sport is the end to which I live. See, when we divorce ourselves from God and we divorce our pursuits and our wealth and our achievements from God, Sartre is right. It's going to end in utter nausea. Kierkegaard is right. It's going to be a sickness unto death. And Solomon joins them. He says, Havel, Havelin. Meaningless. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. One of the things we joke about in our family is that phrase, would you just look at yourself? Would you just look at yourself? Look at us. We are the best dressed, the best fed, the most prosperous, the most entertained people to probably ever walk the face of the earth. Yet why are we riddled with misery and dissatisfaction? Whether it be dissatisfaction with our incomes or our jobs or dissatisfaction with our schools, our homes, our churches, dissatisfaction with our parents, our children, our spouses, our teachers, our leaders, our coaches, our pastors, we are totally dissatisfied in almost everything. It's because we're stuck in this puny under the sun kind of thinking. Now Solomon is zeroing around to his main conclusion. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. He says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their, in their work, their avodah, their worship. He says, This too I see is from the hand of God for Without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? And see, I want us to see the first part of this, uh, verse 24, over and over again throughout this book. Solomon exhorts us to find satisfaction in our work and in the pleasures of life. He over and over again is saying, eat and drink and enjoy it. In other words, Solomon is not saying reject the world or deny the world. He's saying actually to enjoy it, to eat and drink, enjoy the fruit of your labors. 
But then verse 25, which I think is actually the thesis statement or the main point of Ecclesiastes, and it's found in that one clause, for without God or anything done under the sun without God is meaningless. It's just chasing after the wind. I don't care how much you get. I don't care how high you make it. Nausea. But see, when God is the chief end, when God is at the center, when God is at the center of our relationships or the object of our jobs or the sole reason behind our achievements, it's a game changer. I don't know if you know the guy Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl survived a Nazi concentration camp. And he made an assessment. He noted how prisoners all reacted so differently to the horrors of the death camps. He said some just became bad and rebellious. He said most became zombies. But he said there were some who stayed strong and courageous and they were were caring for people and they were happy and they were joyful. And he asked himself, why was this? And his conclusion was, it depended on what a person made their meaning. If a person found their meaning and their sense of self in the things that the death camp could take away, then the death camp could take away all meaning. And a person lost themselves. If you live for family, the death camp would take it away. If you live for material possessions, it raped you bare. If it was for status, you had none. And see, to the extent that people found their their meaning and sense of self from those things, as those things were taken away, so was life's meaning and purpose. And he said the only people who stayed strong were the ones who lived for something the death camps couldn't even take away. This is why we have our kids read The Hiding Place by Corey Timboom. Because Corey Timboom could find the most meaningful life in the most horrific place in a concentration camp because her eyes were not fixed on things under the sun. She had her eyes fixed on the one beyond the sun. Made all the difference. Because there are essentially two ways to live. You can live without God or you can live with God and for God. And where are you today? Are you doing life with him and for him? I'm not talking about just going to church on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about waking up tomorrow morning and waking up and say, I know who I am today. I belong to you. And I know what I'm about today. It's to live for you. Now, in some ways, if you're reading this in a linear fashion, Solomon could, could have really quit writing after chapter 2, but he doesn't because there's more to write. Solomon has just laid out what life is like without God. It's hopeless, but now Solomon is going to start writing about what life is with God. And life with God has its own challenges. Life with God doesn't mean just a walk in the park or a bed of roses. 
And that's why he starts out and he says there's a time for everything. There's an appropriateness for every activity. In other words, you don't laugh and joke around at someone's funeral. You don't usually weep and cry and mourn at someone's wedding. And what wisdom is, is knowing what's appropriate for the appropriate time. Now, if you notice in verses 2 through 8, there are seven couplets here. These seven couplets pretty much cover the totality of life. Because seven in the Bible is the number of completion. So this describes the complete life. It describes life to the full. And because seven is also God's number, this describes life with God. In other words, those who walk with God can expect all the realities of verses 2 through 8. I know some of you are bothered by this. Because you think that when you become a Christian, the bad things in those verses are no longer going to be applied to you. Or that any bad that would happen to happen to you in this life certainly isn't from God. It's, it's, it's probably the result of evil or Satan. But look at verse 1. It says there is a time for everything. And who appointed everything that happens in our life? We'll go down to verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in his time. God is the appointer of these times. Because God is not the genie in a bottle that some of us want to make him to be. We, we think, if only I do life with God, then all is going to be well. Yes, life without God is utterly hopeless. But life with God means we are no longer in control. And it means a life with a God that we can't always figure out. And that's why Solomon even says in verse 10, this too is a heavy burden. But in verses 11 to the end of chapter 3, Solomon basically provides four foundational stones that we can build our life upon with God that will allow our house or our life to stand. Foundation stone number one is God has a plan for you. For me, for all that he has made, and his plan is good because he is good, which means that there's rhyme and reason and purpose behind everything that happens to us, even the bad. I wish I had a piano because I'd have Dave Vanderveld come up here right now. <laughs> I took piano lessons for, for three years, so I know enough about piano to know the difference between the black keys and the white keys. <laughs> Anyone who knows anything about the black keys, when you play the pack black keys by themselves, it just sounds wrong. It sounds off. Play the white keys and they sound right. But if all you had were just the white keys, it'd still be pretty stale and bland. 
It's the white keys working with the black keys that make the music pop and beautiful. And that's the same with life. We need the black keys because without them, the best things in life would be missing, whether it be acts of courage or empathy or grace or stories of redemption and beauty. It'd all be missing. But you put the black keys with the white keys and you have a life that sings. That's what verses 2 to 8 are here to say. It's a life that includes both white keys and black keys that can sing all possible chords and that's what produces the beauty. And here's the deal. God will make it all beautiful in his time. He has a plan. That's foundation stone number one. Foundation stone number two. Not only does God have a plan, but it's mysterious. Because look at verse 11. Yes, he's going to make all things beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Solomon's looking at this and he's saying, God's put the infinite into the finite. Which means that we're always left trying to make sense of infinite realities with just finite capabilities. Which is why we're left asking why. Because we aren't God and we don't know the beginning from the end. And how this little puzzle piece fits into the whole. And so we ask, okay, why was I born this way? Why did my dad have to treat me that way? Why did God have to take my closest friend? Why are all these horrible things happening to me? Here's the deal. We aren't God. And we aren't always going to have an answer. We aren't always going to have an explanation. But God, the all-wise one, with an all-wise plan, does. But that plan for now is a mystery. Foundation stone number three. I want us to hear this. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I know that there's nothing better than for people to be happy and to do good while they live, that they may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their work. Over and over again, Solomon is saying this. He's saying, enjoy God's gifts. Christian, have some fun. Stop taking yourself so seriously. See, I think Christians live in one of two extremes today. They either live for the world with just a little of God sprinkled on top of it, or they reject the world entirely so they can live with God. Neither one of these things is biblical. We should enjoy the world because we enjoy God. And because we enjoy God, we should enjoy the world. That's why Solomon over and over again, it it almost sounds contradictory. And he says, the world is meaningless. But yet he says, enjoy it. Eat, drink. It's not more spiritual to deny yourself enjoyment or good food or a sport you like to play or a good vacation. 
or great time at the ballpark? Who made the world? Are you guys sleeping? (laughs) Why did he make it? For our enjoyment. Have you ever given someone a gift where you've put a lot of thought into that gift? The world is God's gift to us. Life is God's gift to us. Work is God's gift to us. Our bodies are God's gift to us. Food is God's gift to us. Going to a baseball game is God's gift to us. Playing a round of golf is is, is God's gift to us. God wants us to enjoy his gifts. Not that we make idols out of the, the gifts or where the gift becomes more than the giver, but to enjoy God by enjoying his gifts to us. That's why when we eat and drink, all it should cause us to do is give thanks. As we play football, it should be an act of worship. In our work, we ought to be thinking, God, how is my work right now just benefiting you and your kingdom? I love the Jewish expression with all this. Lachaim. To life. Enjoy it. It's a gift. Christians should be the most fun people in the world. We should be the least uptight people in the world. L'chaim. To life. To the giver of life. Foundation stone number four. Look at verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Or in other words, God sits on his throne. So be at ease. His sovereign is total. Nothing will stand in the way of of his plan. His control is, is over all things. This idea of God's sovereignty isn't an idea that should trouble us. This is an idea that should comfort us. And then when you stop and think that the God who is over all also entered the all, he knows our human condition in every facet because God in Christ has experienced all of these appointed times. In fact, in terms of the black keys, Christ's life and death sound probably the darkest dirge ever. But look at what those dark chords produced. A new song, the song of songs, the song of deliverance, salvation. This God is on the throne. He has a plan. And he's going to make everything, everything beautiful. In his time. Let's pray. Wow, God, I feel like I'm in Israel right now with this sweat. I got a great lather going right now. (laughs) God, you're so good to us. 
all your gifts. We just praise you and bless you. And this morning, if there's anyone who's living life under the sun and is in a place of despair, God, I pray that you would lift their eyes up and their face up and you would open the eyes of their heart to see you, the one who is beyond the sun and all that you have done for them. We pray this in Jesus' name.